A reading from Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the land, than the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat any tree of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, fruit and ate. And she also gave some of her hu- some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after forty days and forty nights he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up, 
lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The Gospel of the Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've now completed four days of Lent. So we're one-tenth of the way there. But the length of this season, of course, 40 days, not counting Sundays, is derived from the 40-day duration of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, which we just read from the Gospel of Matthew. So each year on the first Sunday of Lent, the Gospel appointed is an account of Jesus' temptation from either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But this year, the lectionary pairs this episode with a first lesson taken from Genesis, specifically the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now one thing the Adam and Eve story reveals is how we as humans inevitably will respond to temptation in the natural state that we are born into, which is, needless to say, we will not respond well. We're not born with the capacity to overcome temptation with any sort of consistency. And this, of course, is why we needed Jesus, the Son of God, to become man in order to accomplish what we couldn't. He did have the capacity to resist temptation, as we saw from Matthew today. So it is through faith in his righteousness, by throwing our lot in with him, that we are forgiven for our failures to resist temptation and restore the relationship with the Father. But as we often talk about around here, Jesus came and did what he did, living, dying, and rising, not merely in order to win us forgiveness in relationship with God. No, in addition to that, the salvation he offers to those who will follow him is a lifelong journey of becoming like him. In the Eastern Church, the Eastern half of the church, they have a fancy word for this. Maybe you've heard it. The word is theosis. Theosis. And I've printed this word for you in the title of my sermon there in your bulletin. Theosis. The Greek, this Greek word refers to the promise that following Jesus will lead us gradually to become more and more like God. You'll notice it's the words made up of two parts. Theo means God in Greek. And that suffix, cis, is a suffix that refers to a condition that takes place or comes about by a process. Okay, So if theosis refers to the process all followers of Jesus are ideally in, of becoming more like him, the fruit of this process, the fruit of theosis in our life, will be our coming to handle situations more in the way Jesus would have handled them in his time on earth. And this goes even for temptation 
to sin. That we would begin to handle temptation more like Jesus and less like Adam and Eve. So if we're contrasting the way Adam and Eve responded to temptation to the way Jesus responds, that should be our aim, to allow God to help us respond to temptation more in the manner Jesus does and less in the manner that Adam and Eve do. So today, I want to highlight some of the similarities between these two temptation episodes, the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and what Jesus experiences in the desert or wilderness, And then I want to highlight some differences, though, in how they respond to that temptation. Because it's instructive for some of the challenges we have to grapple with in order to live uh, into theosis and throw off the sinful tendencies of our old self and live more into that new identity in Christ. So one commonality between the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Christ is both temptations include an assault on what God has said. An assault on what God has said. In the chapter 3 portion of our Genesis passage, both the serpent and Eve misquote God in an exchange that eventually undermines Adam and Eve's trust in God. This begins in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2 when the serpent overstates what God had actually said. He asked if God had actually said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Of course, if we look back at 2.16, God had actually said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except for just one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent overstates. Did God really say you can't eat anything? God says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good of evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, they will be, the Adam and Eve will be cut off from their source of eternal life, which is the tree of life. But next, in Eve's response to this question from the serpent, Eve herself adds to what God has said, adds to God's prohibition. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So notice God hadn't said anything about touching. Then finally in verse 4, the serpent directly contradicts God's word, what God has said, his warning, saying you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in the Garden of Eden, we see a marginalization of God's words, which gradually undermines Eve's trust in God. But we also find the devil assaulting God's words in the temptation of Christ. In this case, by proof texting, which means taking scriptures out of context and distorting the meaning of them. In the second of the temptations, in verse 5, the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, where he suggests Jesus should just throw himself off. And the devil quotes scripture in support of this ridiculous idea. Quoting from Psalm 91, the devil says, For it's written, God will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus understands that the devil is misusing Scripture 
to encourage behavior that would actually be unfaithful to God, putting God to the test. Therefore, Jesus resisted this temptation by quoting Scripture to that effect against putting God to the test from Deuteronomy. But both of these temptations serve as a warning and a reminder that while the revelation of God's word is an incredible gift to us, it can also be misused to great harm. Kind of reminds me of what I preached on actually about um, anger and sexual desire a few weeks ago, right? Both are incredible gifts that can be very helpful in the case of anger, alerting us when boundaries are crossed, sexual desire in the form of of, uh, procreation and bonding between husband and wife. But they're also, for as powerful as they are, they are huge responsibilities not to misuse. We need God's help to do that. Well, the same here with the incredible gift of God's revelation to them. Adam and Eve show that if they show anything about humans' use of God's word, it's that we are incredibly foul, in, excuse me, we are incredibly fallible. We are imperfect in handling God's word, particularly when we seek to handle it on our own, as Eve does here. Then the temptation of Christ shows us how the enemy can, can capitalize or attempt to capitalize on this fallibility to make us blind to sin. In fact, even to, to lead us to call good evil and to call evil good. So what safeguards or helps has God given us against misinterpreting Scripture? Well, first, he's given us the communion of saints to be accountable to. And what I mean by that is God has given us the resource of other believers, both our fellow believers in Christ here and now, but also 2,000 years of the saints who've gone before us and following God so that we can be accountable to them, to others, for the way we are interpreting God's words. You know, one can't help but think that if if Eve had maybe even just consulted with Adam a little bit, and this is not a gender thing, by the way. It's actually, that scripture has actually been really misused in that way, too. Shocking. Um, If Eve had just... Consulted, well, what, what was it that God said to us? Do you remember, you know, now Adam's imperfect too, but they'd had a better chance of not succumbing than her just being there on alone with her, her tempter. All right. You may have caused more problems mentioning that than. Well, in the last two centuries, a practice has emerged in the Western church, and particularly in evangelicalism, to read scripture privately. In fact, in many churches, there is an enormous amount of pressure placed on people to read the scriptures on their own devotionally every day. There's commonly the the impression given that if you don't do that, you're kind of a subpar Christian or whatever. Now, it's not that I want to discourage folks from reading the Bible, not at all. But what I want us to do is I want us to be clear-eyed and recognizing the limitations of reading it privately. See, I would suggest that private scripture reading is most beneficial, it is beneficial, potentially, but most beneficial for reminding us about what we already believe. Reminding us about what we already believe. right? Which is great, right? We often need to be encouraged in God's truth and renew our minds and all that. 
definitely. The problem is, I'm not sure how helpful it is for convicting us of blind spots in our understanding, right? Or revealing errors we have in our thinking or beliefs about God. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I'd say it's uncommon that it can be used in that way. Instead, that's much more likely to occur occur as we engage with other saints, other believers, dead or alive, in what they understand the Scriptures to mean. Grapple with the Scriptures and God's truth in community. So, this I don't know if this surprised you or not. As a pastor, I frankly would rather someone spend the time to grapple with one verse of Scripture in community than to read 100 verses of Scripture on their own. Why? Because I think it's ultimately, in the long run, going to be more productive for spiritual growth to read it in community. Now, this isn't foolproof. As a body of believers in in a particular historical and cultural context, we're all going to have some collective blind spots, right, as an entire group, generally speaking. However, those blind spots are going to be significantly narrower than any of us, if any of us relies solely on our own understanding, where the blind spots are going to be a lot bigger. So this kind of issue is, frankly, one of our objectives in in centering, you know, making one of the central ministries of St. Matthias be sermon-based life groups, right? First, we hear the word taught by someone who has at least, hopefully, a general awareness of how the church has understood the apostolic faith as a whole, as well as particular scriptures. Or if I don't know about a particular scripture, I at least have the training and resources to go find out what the church has thought about scriptures, right? Then we gather in life groups, and when we do so, we bring together all of our knowledge and experience of walking with God to wrestle with whether what has been preached is true, right? And to refine and nuance our understanding of what we've heard. So it's no coincidence, then, when it comes to spiritual growth of parishioners here at St. Matthias. I've personally noticed, as much as I can assess this, which is a moving target, but I've noticed the rate of spiritual growth tends to be much more rapid among those who choose to participate in a life group compared to those who choose not to, right? Sure, there's exceptions to that rule on both sides, but it makes sense that those who are regularly and intentionally grappling with God's truth and community, instead of just reading it to affirm what they already think, right, that they're going to be positioning themselves much better for spiritual growth and transformation, for theosis, than those who are content to rely primarily on their own understanding and their kind of little um, echo chamber of their own heart and mind. So that's the first safeguard, is reading Scripture in community. But the second safeguard God provides against misusing His Scripture is the very life and teachings of Jesus Himself, which all interpretations of Scripture must be held up to. You'll notice that in response to each of the devil's three temptations, even though the devil only used a scripture in one of them, Jesus used a scripture back in all of them, right? And we see Jesus standing in his authority here as the Son of God to understand the true meaning and intent of God's word. And that's an authority that we'll see him later fully assert, right? In a chapter later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins teaching, well, you've heard it said, such and such in God's law, but I say to you that this is the true and deep and full intent of that law. 
right? He's standing in his authority to be the primary interpreter um, and lens through which all of God's scripture should be understood. So when we grapple with Scripture as a community of believers, we do so equipped with this sort of litmus test of Jesus' teaching and life, right? A litmus test for the veracity, the truthfulness of any interpretation that might be thrown out there, right? Which is basically, does this sound like Jesus? Or would this lead to behavior that would reflect the love of Jesus or his priorities? Good question to ask when people throw things out there in life group. So the first commonality we see between the temptation of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Christ is the assault on God's words and this temptation to trust solely in our own understanding. But next, a second commonality I want to highlight is the temptation to supplant God, that is to edge God out of his rightful place in our lives. Beginning in Genesis at chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent lies to the woman that if she eats of the fruit, she will, quote, not surely die. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, this is interesting because we said at the outset today, I said at the outset that God's whole purpose for our lives is what? Is theosis, which is for us to become like God. And that's the very thing that that the serpent here is is suggesting would happen. Well, us becoming like God means not only beginning to handle situations in this life more like Jesus, but it also includes the promise that when Jesus returns, we will be glorified. God will glorify us. Paul says it to, uh, to the Colossians, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And on 1 John it says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And the, the book of Revelation promises the servants of Christ will reign over creation forever. Right? But here's the key. The key with God's plan for our theosis, our becoming like him, is it is something that he does for us and in us as we submit to him. We seek to be faithful to him. That's our responsibility. And he chooses to glorify us in his timing and as he sees fit. Well, along the same lines, We know that Jesus' destiny was to be glorified by the Father and to be given reign over all the world and the kingdoms of the world, right? But in order to inherit this, we also know Jesus would first have to suffer, to go to the cross and die, and then rise and ascend, right? So the devil's temptation to Jesus here is for Jesus to just take it now, to go ahead and take it, right? It's going to be yours someday. Go ahead and take it now. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I'll give you if you'll fall down and worship. So the temptation here is that instead of allowing the father to glorify him, as has been promised, the devil's tempting Jesus to go ahead and seize that glory for himself. But if you look, Jesus, of course, doesn't do this. And if you look at 
what Paul says in Philippians 2, which I've included in that box this morning. In verse 6, he says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He chose not to grasp for it. Instead, he chose to wait on God the Father to glorify him. And it was because Jesus did not grasp for that place of God that God ultimately did glorify him. Verse 9, therefore God has, this is after his resurrection, of course, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee, all the kingdoms of the world, every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth, every tongue confess that he's Lord. So how does this apply to us then? Well, the, the eyes of faith recognize that the Lord, not the glory of the world, the Lord is the true desire of our hearts. And if we seek him, he will add what we need in the world in addition to him. Right? As Jesus will teach two chapters later, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, everything in the world that we need will be added to it. Or as the father says in the parable of the prodigal son, as he says to his older son, he teaches him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Or as Jesus also teaches, to the one who has, more will be given. He will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You seek the world, you end up with nothing. You seek God, you end up with everything. The temptation to supplant God and grasp his glory for ourselves is a common one, right? To grasp for glory from the world and from man instead of receiving it from the Father. We do this in all sorts of ways, right? By by quite literally seeking the praise of men. This is a daily temptation for us. Or by throwing away our money on materialistic things just to impress one another. Look what emblems on my car or whatever. Or even by being perfect, a perfectionist, being perfectionistic. A friend of mine says perfectionism is our attempt to do away with God. As a perfectionist, I'm not actually a big fan of that. He says it's our attempt to, to do away with God, to not need him. And the problem, of course, is that we're never going to be perfect and we're never going to be God. But it's our attempt to supplant God. Right, so actually, one practice I've, I recently heard, actually Amanda mentioned this to me, was um, the discipline of, of practicing, uh, practicing receiving help. This is a way we can play offense against our t- temptation to edge God out in our lives, is to actually be intentional to practice to receive help, the help of others, even where we might not entirely need it. You know, the idea being, you know, pick something once a week to just, it's not about not taking responsibility for your your load, right? But to just not be so dang self-sufficient. And I got this, and it's got to be done just this way. Right? It's practicing interdependency on the body of Christ and a, a way to recognize our limitations as humans and that we aren't God. It's a way to affirm, I am not God. I need other people. And the way I see it, if this is good news or bad news, you know, we're, we're either going to learn to do this 
<laughs> or eventually life's going to deal us circumstances that force us to learn to do this, right? which is much more painful. We're either going to kind of proactively accept, okay, I'm not God, I need to be able to receive help from others and not buy into this American myth of self-sufficiency, right? Or, you know, life's going to happen. And someday we're going to need people, but we're not going to be practiced at receiving, and it's going to be super painful. So the second commonality we see between the temptation of in the garden and the temptation of Christ is the temptation to supplant God, to edge him out of his rightful place in our life. But the third and final commonality I want to highlight involves perhaps the most obvious connection between the passages. You may be wondering, why haven't we gotten to this yet? I'm kind of going out of order. But that obvious connection is the connection of eating. right? And in both instances, the temptation to eat, right, the fruit or make stones into bread for Jesus, the temptation to eat represents the temptation to seek pleasure and relief from the created world apart from God and his ways. Right? Kind of taking creation into our own hands and using for pleasure and relief to really, again, cut God out of the equation. If we return to that Genesis passage, having had God command her uh, to uh, having had God's command to her sufficiently undermined through her exchange with the serpent and becoming convinced that the eating would give her godlike knowledge and wisdom, Eve deems the forbidden tree in chapter 3, verse 6 as, quote, good for food, its fruit as, quote, a delight to the eyes, and she's become convinced that eating from it is going to be beneficial, right, to make her like God. So we're told that she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate. Adam wasn't much of a thinker, I don't think. (laughs) I can pick on him too. Oh, okay. Then in Matthew, when the devil first engages Jesus, Jesus hasn't eaten in 40 days. Right? I would be so hangry. So in verse 3, the tempter comes to him and says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Remember, this circumstance of being, being in this position of having not eaten for 40 days, this is something, this is God's doing, the Father's doing, the Spirit's doing in Jesus' life, right? It was the Spirit who drove Jesus out to the wilderness and allowed him to be tempted in this way. So we know that it is God's will that he is in this compromised situation of being hungry, right? But it also means, if God put him there, that God is also willing to sustain him, be there for him, so that he doesn't have to succumb to temptation. So Jesus answers, man shall not live by bread alone. It's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But again, both of these cases represent a temptation that often hounds us, which is to seek out pleasure from the created world. Not that that's wrong, right? Pleasure in itself isn't wrong. Enjoying a nice piece of fruit ain't wrong, right? It's when we do that in lieu of what God, what God has commanded in his boundaries, right? Seeking out pleasure from the created world in lieu of, frankly, living in reality in difficult circumstances. Seeking comfort from God. We seek comfort from creation rather than God. 
But see, if we weren't, if we didn't, res- if we didn't succumb to that temptation, kind of moving through this reality without opting for the easy fix, that's actually how we develop emotional maturity as human beings. By not seeking to escape difficulty, right? But by remaining present in our current reality and believing in faith that God will show up, that God will help us to remain faithful through those difficult feelings. The problem is many of us were not encouraged or ever taught how to do this, right? In fact, we were probably trained to medicate with creation. From a young age, many of us, most of us, probably learned very unhealthy means for coping with reality that by now are ingrained habits, a reflexive reaction, something, you know, for me, something bad happens, let's go find some ice cream. I mean, seriously, right? I don't want to feel this right now, so I want to feel something different, right? But that's where emotional maturing gets stunted. See, here's the harsh truth. The harsh truth is that those coping mechanisms don't really work. Right? Over time, and over time, they become more of a problem than a help. Right? In other words, none of us can actually turn stones into bread. That doesn't keep us from trying. I mean, you might be able to call that the human condition. Constantly trying to turn stones into bread. <laughs> right? Constantly looking to creation to not have to deal. But in order to, to misuse fleeting uh, pleasures in this way, what do we have to do? We have to turn away from God to do that. We have to turn away from our source of true life, which only leads to consequences more painful than if we hadn't sought to avoid that suffering and difficulty in the first place and just tried to stay in the, in the Lord and use some of the resources he offers, which I'll mention in a second. But, but to put it another way, think about it like this. Pain and suffering is inevitable in this life. Our choice is between choosing to kind of press into that and develop emotional maturity by learning to go through pain with God and others, which would be, we would call that redemptive suffering, suffering that actually produces a good. Or escaping short-term pain by succumbing to temptation for short-term pleasure. But that second choice is basically signing up for unredemptive suffering because it will inevitably lead to long-term consequences that are much more painful than what we were trying to avoid in the first place. So one way God has provided us to begin choosing the path of redemptive suffering instead of unredemptive suffering, one one something God has provided us is He's given us each other. He's given us each other. Our greatest means for resisting temptation in the midst of suffering is being vulnerable with others and learning to feel the suffering, the pain, the struggle but doing it in community. I'm not saying 30 people. One or two trusted people is probably sufficient, right? Learning to, to move through that with the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit. In the body. But, you know, God has given us the gift of one another. Choosing to do that rather than, tr- than trying to pridefully power through on our own, pretend like we got it all together. 
So in this sermon, we've looked at three commonalities between the temptations of of Adam and Eve and the temptation of Christ. But I've made suggestions for how, um, and I've, I've shown how we're vulnerable to each of them ourselves, but in each case I've suggested a practical way we can play offense against these vulnerabilities. Right? We can combat our vulnerability against misusing God's word by seeking to grapple with scripture and God's truth in community with other believers. That doesn't mean we can't read the Bible by ourselves, but you know what? Checking in and being accountable to other believers about you know, these grand conclusions we may be drawing uh, is a healthy idea. Second, we can combat the temptation to try to, to edge God out by practicing receiving help and asking for And third, we can make some headway against that tendency to respond to the suffering life brings with with escapism by identifying a trustworthy believer or two who seems to have maybe more emotional maturity than we do. That's always a a plus. Because or else they might, well, here's the ice cream. (laughs) Right? Somebody who has some more emotional maturity than we do and choosing the next time struggle arises, to practice being vulnerable with them about the pain they feel. Is there one of these mitigating actions that you might begin cultivating with God, maybe during this season of Lent? I'll close this way. In the end, Say, so what's the difference between Adam and Eve and Jesus, their temptations, or how they go? The difference between the way Adam and Eve succumb to temptation and the way Jesus resists temptation all comes down to trust. Jesus had clearly learned in this earthly life to trust God the Father in his ways above all. Right? And we're never going to do that perfectly, but we can certainly make progress. We're not the Son of God, I know but he is making us more like himself, theosis. Whereas Adam and Eve, any trust they may have had in God was undermined. But you know, when the the scriptures are talking about having faith, this trust is what it's talking about, right? The biblical faith is less about believing Jesus is Lord when things are going well, you know, It's more about trusting him more than even ourselves when everything hits the fan, right? That's walking faith out. That's the sort of faith that actually produces fruit and makes a difference for how we respond to the inevitable temptations that we're going to encounter during life in this world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.